All right. Hey, welcome to Studio 9. Uh, I'm with Heather Moyes. Um, Heather, welcome to our world-renowned, world-famous one-day studio. I love it. You love it, really? Yep, love it. That's good. It's important to that. You love it. It's important that our guests love it. Um, <laughs> Studio 9 is an opportunity for us to kind of have a, have a conversation, have a chat, and, um, and kind of go back through your past, your history, and then, of course, really more importantly, where you're going um, in the future and, you know, what, what your past um, has, has kind of directed you um, in the future. And, and if you don't know uh, Heather, you should. Um, Heather is a four-time Olympian. Uh, two-time gold medalist in this sport of, of uh, bobsled, uh, as well as rugby. Uh, not a gold medalist, but you competed in, in, in Olympic uh, rugby as no. well. You did not compete in Olympic rugby. No, it wasn't in the Re- Olympics. The research is... I have it wasn't this. in the Olympics when I competed, but I've just been inducted into the World Rugby Hall of Fame. Which, if I'm correct, you're the second... The second Canadian ever. First, ever. first female Canadian, yeah. Who's the, who's the guy? Um, Gareth Reese. Oh, okay. Gareth Reese. And then He's Al Sharon just was inducted last year. Oh, wow. So Al Sharon's the third, yeah. Right on. Yeah. How, how, do you, how do you go about, I mean, people know you, obviously, I think if people know you, they know you from your bobsled career. I think is what people mostly recognize you. Most people, except rugby people are pretty hardcore. Hardcore, yeah, the rugby They folk. correct people and say she was rugby first. Right. Like it's very, it's very protective and very, I, I, you know, I can understand that. Yeah. So you, you are, but you're. So in the rugby world, you're known for rugby. Yes. But the average Canadian world, you're probably known more for bobsledding. Bobsledding, yes. Um, where are you from? Or tell, me, tell me the backstory. So I want to let's go back. Let's go way back in Heather Moyes' life. And let's find out. Um, you were born where? I was born and raised in Summerside, Prince Edward Island. Which is where you currently reside. Which is where... I kind of, I kind of reside in airports more than anything. Right. Um, Very so I'm, yes, I am actually transient, but I probably am based between PEI and Toronto. Right. Um, would be the two primary places, places where I, from which I travel. And then I'm traveling in between, but yeah, I still, I, everything, my heart and soul are still there. So I spend as much time there as I can. If, if you could, um, if you could pick one place to live, where would you live? One place to live. Because we're going to get into the fact that something about your training you did in, uh, in the Maritimes on purpose. So yeah, I I would um, if it aligned with my ability to travel in the winter a lot easier. I would probably try and make it happen in PEI. Yeah. Um, but I've lived in some phenomenal places. I've lived in Trinidad and Tobago. I've lived in Ireland, um, and so there are places I would still be willing to explore. But yeah. yeah, I love it in PEI. So you got into sports later, in terms of. Like the high-end competitive world of sports. Yeah, I started take. I played sports my whole life, yeah. but just for fun. Yeah. Um, I didn't start taking it seriously or actually training for sports till I was twenty-seven. Wow, twenty-seven yeah. seems like most people think that's far too late. Yeah, they're usually done, gone. Yeah, yeah. Like in most sports, yes. like if you're playing hockey, basketball, football, you're done at twenty. Twenty-seven is like the end of your career. You're going down. Yes. Like approaching thirty, you're almost dead, according to sports. That is true. Right. So, so what was it? You're like, almost dead. Well, like, sort of. Well, you, you, yeah. you have a walker. Um, you probably have a lot of onshore <laughs> in the morning. Um, but here's here's my question. So, in high school, you played. So you played high school high school sports. Yes. What was your high school sport? Um, I did soccer in the fall, basketball in the winter, rugby in the spring, and then track and field was also in the spring. But because we were playing rugby, we didn't really train for it. We just showed up on the day and signed up for the events we wanted right. to do. So, so That's rugby, how it works in PEI. It's so simple. It's yeah. 11 high schools. You just PEI. sign up, say, what am I going to do today? Is there 11 high schools in PEI? 11 or 12? There's not many. Uh, there aren't very many, no. Yeah, so it's, there's not a lot of people there. 
Not a lot of people. So you, if you want to play sports, you can play sports. Probably. You can play sports and you can play as many as you want. Yeah. Yeah. So rugby is obviously where you have more of a history in yes. than anything else. Yeah. Like I, there was no high school bobsledding, for example. It was just rugby. <laughs> it wasn't? No. There was no high school bobsledding? No, there was not. I know. It's shocking. It's like um, been a hot It's shocking. Yeah. Uh, especially with all the big hills and mountains we have in PEI. Um, yeah. I just, I mean, rugby would have been my... My, I played all of them equally, but rugby is where I really, I mean, just it's, it rugby's more than anybody who plays knows that it's more than just a sport. It's a, it's a community. It's a, it's a culture. So you kind of end up diving into this, this crazy culture that's yeah. so like protective of each other. And you have like, it's like you have family all around the world because you all are living this. It's a community. It's, it's a different it's, culture almost. It is. Rugby. My brother, it played. goes beyond the sport itself. Yeah. My brother played very amateur you know, local rugby, but the guys he played with were just, that's awesome. They were, it was everything. Yep. Um, they had posters saying that it was everything like that was their life. Um, and they were just amateurs, but it is, is the lifestyle around yeah. it too. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, how did you get to at 27 years old compete at that level at the Olympic level in, in uh, bobsledding? Yeah. In bobsledding. So, um, four years prior, um, so I was, well, I guess I was, I don't know how old it, it was 22. I was, it was before I turned 23. I'd been, uh, I was approached by a, a former track coach from McGill. I went to the university of Waterloo for my undergrad. Um, and I had competed against some of his track athletes. And so a year after I graduated from my undergrad, I got a random phone call from him saying, you know, I am been asked to do recruiting for Eastern Canada for bobsledding. And I used to I used to compete when I was younger and I think you would be perfect for it. I think you have the ideal combination between strength and speed and it's exactly what the, the team needs. And I said, bobsledding, like, no, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm not interested. And he's like, but Heather, I know who's in the program and the Olympics are coming up in park city and Salt Lake, Salt Lake city. And you would be like, I know who's in the program. You'd be going for sure. You'd be an Olympian. Wow. And like, you could tell from the way his tone was that it was more a dream of for him, it had always been his dream to go to the Olympics, but it wasn't mine. I had always wanted to work in a developing country and I had already accepted an internship position to go down and work in Trinidad and Tobago. So I left and I, like I told him I was fine with not going to the Olympics because I was already pursuing at the time what my goal was and what my dream was. And so I ended up going to that internship, uh, in 2000, in the fall of 2001. And I lived there for almost three years in, in Trinidad. Trinidad yeah. yeah. And then when I moved back to Canada, it was just to do my master's degree in occupational therapy. And, um, that's kind of when my sister asked me to play club rugby with her again for fun. And so I did. And, and where was that? that was in, in, on to, in, Toronto, in Toronto. Yeah. And then with, uh, with the Toronto Scottish and then, and then from there, like that first, I, it took me a long time. I'm like, do I really want to play rugby again? Like throw myself on the ground and blah, blah, blah. And I, so I just said it would be fun to play with my sister again. Mm -hmm. So I went and that first practice, the coach who also happened to be the Ontario coach said, I'm not sure where you came from, but I, ex I hope you'll come to the very last Ontario tryout we have. So my sister and I both went to the Ontario tryout. We made the Ontario team and then we had one game that summer against the Quebec team before nationals at the end of right. the summer. And there happened to be a national coach at that game. And then suddenly I'm being asked to do a development camp at the end of the summer. And my first tour with the national team was that November. Wow. Um, we went to England. And so that was rugby. And that was kind of, 
in the middle, like of my, in the midst of my first year of my master's program. And then after my first year of my master's program, exactly four years after Dennis had tried to recruit me that first time to bobsledding, I run into him at my former track coach's retirement party. And he's still like, just, I mean, he's amazing. He's such a lovely person, but he was very like, I can't believe you didn't do it. And I saw you just ran a couple of races in the winter. You're still fast. You're much older now. So it's probably going to be harder. And I was <laughs> you like, you, you're much older you don't tell a redhead that, no. you know, things might be more challenging. So anyway, I, uh, I just said, fine, just, just, okay, just, just send me the information. Just e here's my email. Just send it to me. And so he sent me the information for when they would be doing the testing in like the, it's kind of like combine testing, like physical mm -hmm. testing or whatever in different cities. And so I sent him an email back and I said, thanks for the information. I took a look at my schedule, but unfortunately I'm going to be away with the national rugby team when they're coming testing through Ontario. So I guess it's not going to work out, but it was really nice seeing you dismiss, dismiss. dismiss. Right. Like I just thought it was, that was it. yeah, I thought kind of case closed. And then a couple of days later, I get a phone call from a development coach in Calgary. And he says, we got a phone call from Dennis Barrett and he says, you can't make the testing, but he's adamant that he thinks that you should be out here. So we'll fly you out here for the testing camp at the end of the, like the development camp at the end of the summer. Um, and I was like, Oh my gosh. So I like, I was like, okay, yeah. but I had to let him know I was going to miss the first day of, uh, of testing because of the rugby nationals. And he's like, mm, okay. So I love, I missed that first day of testing and it was so I like serendipitous that I was not there because it was all lifting. It was all like being tested on squats, like front squats, wow. basketballs, bench, like all these different things. And I'd never lifted weights before. So never. no, but no, been training for rugby. You didn't do no, because I think people just, you, you are training as a team and then people expect, they just assume you're doing your lifting on your own. Right. And because I grew up with a muscular physique anyway, yeah. I think people just always assumed that I was lifting weights. So right. I, but I avoided them like the plague. So it was, um, so you didn't have to do any of the, the, the lifting part of the, none of it, not for the testing. No. Wow. And I would have, the thing is that had I had to do it, I would have not told anyone that I'd never lifted. No, of course not. Uh, of course not. You don't do that. Make it you make it. Yeah. So I would have like lifted and I would either would have injured myself or embarrassed myself, yeah. probably both. Um, but it was nuts. Like I, fortunately the next day was all speed work and plyos and like sprinting through timing lights, pulling a weighted sled behind me. Like I'd never done any of those either, but at least they were like in my wheelhouse or at least they were something that wasn't going to necessarily create injury by, you know, trying to prove to mm -hmm. people that whatever. Anyway, so I ended up breaking one of their testing records. And here I am just thinking I'm going to do this testing just to get this guy off my back, that I'm not actually going to do bobsledding. So, so during this whole process, you yeah. really weren't no. into doing this? No, I was like, what's the, okay, what's the harm in testing? I'm just going to test. It's, I'm in the middle of my master's degree. It's not like I'm really going to do this. Like, who does this? And the whole thing was just very like, okay, well, it's just an experience. I'll go do the testing and then go back to Toronto and finished my master's degree. Like that was it. But then when I broke the testing record, two pilots came up and asked me right away if I would push for them that like be their alternate to push for them that season. And it started getting me thinking like, what? Like yeah. when you break that record, it's all of a sudden like you get a taste of where things could be. And I looked around and I'm like, how did I break a record amongst all these athletes who've been training for years to be on this team? And now the Olympics like it just turned into a challenge. Can I learn a new sport and can I learn to do it well? And can I learn to do it in like well enough 
in time to compete in the next Olympics, which, which were how? less than five months away. Wow. So if, if someone had said, oh, if you train really hard for four years, you'll go to the Olympics, which someone had told me in track and field years ago, years prior, I wouldn't have done it. To me, it was just like a long, like, okay, I'm not going to train for four years to go to this thing. So for me, it was like a, this really short, intense, crazy challenge that just, it just fueled me. It motivated me. It's like this, the most unlikely of situations. And I'm like, Oh, let's just see how close I can get. This will be fun. One season. Right. And then the big hurdle was having to lift weights. Like part of it was, I almost didn't want to do it because I didn't want to have to lift weights until my sister told me to get over myself. And you did. Yeah. And so you did all your deadlifting and all your squats. I started doing all that partly because she said, she goes, Heather, what happens if you just miss making the team? What happens if you just miss making the team? And then you'll wonder for the rest of your life, if it was, just your stubbornness or your vanity or your whatever of not wanting to lift weights that stopped you or prevented you from competing in the Olympics. So that's a good question. Would you consider yourself through that process of, of, you know, both rugby and, and, and bobsledding, would you consider yourself like, do you have a drive to compete to win? Is that something like you like, are you driven to do that in sport? No. Like, yes and no. Yes. In the some sense people that, are, right? Some people are like, that's, they live and breathe. They get no, up. No, not me. It's in their blood. No, not at all. Like I, I, I am, I'm driven to, I, like, I love the challenge. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's not so much the winning, but it's the, the challenge of, of seeing if I can execute or if we can execute the best of our ability. Because if we can, if we've learned all of our skills and we're able to execute, then we should be able to win. You know, it's that kind yeah. of, it's not just the winning and the, the power, the, that feeling of coming from winning. To me, that's it's kind of just a, like a byproduct of, of what I actually, right. the challenge that I enjoy. Like for me in bobsledding, I quickly learned that, um, even though there are only two people in the sled, um, you could like in Torino, for example, we had push start records and we were the fastest, significantly faster at the start for all four heats. And then we lost, uh, standing on the podium. We missed standing on the podium by only five hundredths of a second. That's accumulated. That's like 5.7 yeah. kilometers total. That's and five hundredths of a second. And so, and, and people can't understand that. Like they don't, you know, you see it on television in, in a lot of sports and you can't understand that micro. That is like the single beat of a hummingbird's wing. That's like probably the width of a hair actually. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. And that's after five runs down the track, five heats all accumulated. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess for me, I kind of separated the two. Like, even though you're competing as a team, for me, the challenge was, that first 50 meters, that, that push start. And even though that still is a team effort, because at first you're both pushing the same time and then it's about velocity. It's about shaving hundredths of a second off your, off your start time. It's about kind of this very, from everyone on the outside, it probably just looks like I'm just putting my weight into it and just running as quickly as I can and getting in before it takes off without me. But it's, it's so technical. Mm -hmm. Um, the angles, angles with which you fall into the sled and extend off the block. It's such micro, micro, micro even the angles of where your first three steps fall. If they're slightly too wide, if you take too big of a step, you've just broken your stride and you've lost your power because it's not behind you anymore. If you go too short, you're stutter stepping and you're not getting the distance you could. It's like, it's like that happy medium. And it's, it's just, it's remarkable. And to me, I found that really fun. Like that, that was fun for me. What was the, what was the first experience at the Olympics like for you? A blur. Yeah. Like I don't even, there are very, how did you do the first time you were there? 
Well, we came fourth. We missed, that, we missed that podium. Yeah, that's yeah. where we missed it. We missed that podium by five hundredths of a second, which is what kind of fueled and sparked. Like, I thought I was just going to do it for a season and then get back to real life. Mm -hmm. Right. And so right after the games, I just like, yeah, I'm going to go back to rugby. And the rugby world cup was that summer. That would have been my first rugby world cup. And then, um, go back, finish my master's degree. So that was the plan. And that's what I did. And I went back, but then at the end of that master's degree, the fourth place starts haunting you mm -hmm. and it starts feeling like unfinished Which, business, yeah. you know, that unfinished business of, did you have a lot of what ifs? It. Like, what if we did this? What if we did that? that no, hang on? no, not, not for me personally, did you because feel like you did everything you could do. I feel like I did everything first. I could. Yeah. yeah. But it was, it did hit me before the Vancouver games. So I, I committed to going back after, after I finished my master's degree and decided to go back. Um, partly because that fourth place fueled that fire, fueled the challenge of seeing if I could um, turn that fourth place into just getting onto the podium and win a medal for my country. Like I was like, can I win it? I want to win a medal for my country. So that's kind of what sparked that next challenge. Mm -hmm. And right before Vancouver, if you remember that the whole thing was believe, right? The, yep. the whole slogan for Vancouver yep. was believe. And so they were getting athletes to shoot these different commercials and all of that stuff. And my teammate from, uh, from Torino, um, Helen Upperton, she was in one of these commercials and I didn't, I didn't realize. And so I, I was sitting uh, in the basement of my sister's place watching, we were watching a show or something. And all of a sudden this, this commercial came on and I was like, Oh my gosh, there's Helen. And we started watching it. And her, the thing was about belief. And then she, in this commercial, she talked, she referred to Torino about how she just, just missed the podium mm -hmm. and that it was because she, if she was really honest with herself, she really didn't believe that she could do it. She didn't believe that she deserved to be there. She was wow. just, she had grown up dreaming about going to the Olympics and, you know, dreaming to be kind of in that space. But so when she got there, she didn't think she was worthy of being there. Like she, she thought this is where Olympians are. This is not where normal people are, which is probably why I never considered the Olympics growing up. It's like, right. those are TV people. It seems too far away, too far fetched. It's too far fetched. Those yeah. are those people, not everyday normal people like I am. Someone who grew up in PEI in a mm -hmm. small town, like in, and so we just, I think we just don't, we define our what's realistic based on our past experiences or our the limitations of our immediate surroundings and our immediate exposure to things. And so when I heard that, part of me got really frustrated. I was like. Why didn't she believe we had just beaten, we had just won a gold medal on the world cup circuit against the same athletes. Right. So for you me, I was could. like, yeah, we could, we had everything is mm -hmm. the only thing about the Olympics is focusing your mindset to a place that allows you to execute what you're already able to execute. It's getting yourself at that optimal level of arousal for performance in order to peak state, peak state mm -hmm. in order to execute what you already can do. I, I want to not forget that because I want to talk about that in life in yeah, general. Sure, that's, yeah. I think a great, a, a great piece. It's interesting you say that because when you said that, um, you, you see an athlete and you don't think they're just, they're, they're otherworldly. They don't, how could that be me? Yeah. I've had a chance to talk to a lot of great athletes, mm -hmm. um, Olympic Olympians, you know, yourself, um, Cheryl Pounder, Mark Tewksbury, um, Clara Hughes, yes. um, Sarah Wells, we had in the podcast. Um, and it's funny, everyone's very normal. Yeah. When you meet an athlete, they're not, they're, they're often very confident, which mm -hmm. is fantastic, but they're very humble in the same respect too. They're confident, but very humble and they're very real and they're very, they have a very everyday life and they're very everyday Canadian or everyday human. And so I think it's really important that people realize when they, when they, when they talk to, um, world-class athletes in any, in any sport is that 
most of them, especially Olympians, I think, because you're not in it to make, you're not making a contract of a professional athlete. I didn't join bobsledding for the money. No, there's not. Yeah, there's no (laughs) professional bobsledding. You know, people aren't buying your jersey. They should be. Um, My speed suit? Your speed suit, Would you wear it? I would wear it. I would wear a, a, a onesie. Um, it's like a, it's like a morph. It's a suit. very fitted onesie. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I I'll nothing. get you one. Oh really? Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> I'll hold you to that. Um, and I think it's important that when people like, I always think when I talk to people who have done great things that people always think, oh yeah, but oh. I could never do that. Yeah. In anything, not just sport. Like, yeah. You know, you talk to someone who's like um, uh, Sam Nutt we had in the show who who created War Child and done amazing things for kids in war torn countries. You're like, well. That's her. I could never do anything like that. And everybody I've, I've met once didn't do what they did. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think that's really cool. So let's, let's just keep going. Um, so we're, you, you continue to compete. Um, you went to the world cup in rugby. Um, yes. And how was that in comparison to being in the Olympics? Cause a team sport, obviously more a team sport. Cause you know, yeah, team sport, it was like a big team. It was pretty great. Actually. Um, it was, uh, again, just being on that national program, was an eye opener to me too. I think, I think, uh, me being so naive in things like, uh, not in things in general, but just in terms of me even joining the bobsled team, for example, or, and being on tour with the rugby team, like my very first game on the national team, I scored a try against England and the Canadian team lost their minds. They were like, so like, Oh my gosh, like just, Mm -hmm. we scored one, we scored against England and two, it was by this rookie in her very first game. And to me, I was just like, Oh, uh, I thought that's what I was, my job you was. You didn't know you couldn't do it. Yeah. You shouldn't do it. I wasn't, I didn't know that it was such a big deal. I didn't grow up watching sports mm-hmm. and I still don't really watch them. Like I, right. I didn't grow up watching them. So I didn't know what it, you know, the emphasis on winning and the, what the critics, you know, the armchair critics are going to say if you're losing and like the, I didn't grow up with that. So I didn't have that like extra pressure in my mind to do anything or until I was like actually asked to go to this national camp. I didn't even know we had a national women's rugby team. True. So I was like, oh, oh my gosh, we do. Great. I get to play, you know, great. I get to play on another team. It just wasn't, uh, I didn't. And that's something that I do talk about in my book is the overinflating the importance of an event. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, shifts your, that peak performance level, that, that optimal level of arousal for performance. And so it's, it was the same thing with bobsledding in our very first race, we came third. And a couple of the coaches are crying and Helen's so happy. And I didn't realize before then that the best performance she had had in any year before that was only an eighth. Wow. And I just, I didn't realize we were competing against it. I just never crossed my mind that we were competing against other world champions or other Olympic champions, right. From other years. And so to me, it was just, well, they're just other girls and they're just trying to accomplish the same thing I am. So whoever can execute the best today is going to come out on top. Like it was just, it was so, it just was, it was so, the thinking was just so simple and so streamlined and so basic that it's, that it just, I, I fortunately wasn't caught up in this crazy stuff. And because the season was such a blur, that bobsled season, um, in me just trying to learn, like learn what I needed to execute and, and kind of try and perfect it as best I could within that short time I had and try to prove to people that I, that I deserve to be there, like fighting for that competition spot for every single race we did that year in order to get to the games. It was just like a one thing after next, after next, it was like a checklist, checklist, checklist. And then finally, when we got there, like I didn't, I probably didn't even realize it was the Olympics. It was just, it was the the last race of the season. Like just, let's just do this. Let's just do this. And so when I meet, I was meeting people there and I just, 
had no idea who else was going to be there. I had no idea. You know, I get introduced to, to, um, Jason Spezza. Okay. And I don't want, I didn't watch hockey. So no idea who he was. Yeah. yeah, So someone's like, Heather, I want you to come out and meet someone. Heather Moist, Jason Spezza, Jason Spezza, Heather Moist. And I was like, Oh, hi, nice to meet you. And I said, what sport are you here for? Didn't even, it must've been interesting. I have to say he handled it with, with class. Like he didn't even let me know, like made me feel like I should have known. And he's just like, Oh, hockey. I'm like, Oh, we're going to go watch your game tonight. And he goes, ah, not playing. So we had a little conversation about, you know, politics and injuries and, you know, Mm coach decisions and stuff like that. And that was fine. And then that night, it wasn't until I was at the game and I was sitting with my family to watch it because we'd finished competing. And I said, oh yeah, I met one, met one of the players today. And they, and they were like, oh yeah, which one? And I said, Jason somebody. And they're like, Jason, there are three Jasons on the team. And I was like, how do you know there are three Jasons? Like, who knows that? Right. Anyway, my brother-in-law was like, which one? And I said, J- it starts with an S. Jason, it's kind of a funny, like, sp- sp- Jason, sp- he's like Spezza? And I said, yeah, that's it. Jason Spezza. Oh my God, you met Jason Spezza. And I was like, oh, that response makes it seem like I should, <laughs> like he's a big deal. Yeah. So I was like, oh, is it, is it bad that I asked him what sport he plays? And they were like, please don't tell me you asked Jason Spezza what sport he plays. Yes, please did. don't. Ask. Yes, I did. And he's a lovely person in person. Mm. Anyway, it was just, the whole thing was a blur. I didn't even expect I wasn't expecting anything. And it's the right. same with, with playing rugby. And then it just, I realized with those very first naive experiences and how well you can do when you don't overinflate things, that it was a mindset I developed in terms of, you know, making sure that I wasn't increasing the importance of a game or mm-hmm. the importance of an event. And it, it has helped tremendously. There's probably a ton of, re- well, I know there's a ton of research talking about mental mindset obviously and and, yeah. and if you overthink things and if you underthink things probably um okay let's we want to get through a lot of things here but um so <laughs> is this you, three hour po- is this a three, three hour it's a tim ferris three hour podcast Take it. um so so you ended up going back to the olympics obviously yeah. um winning your first gold yes um and then you won the subsequent olympics you won gold again yes um and um it was a pretty cool moment, I think, for the whole country, for you to win gold. Um, and for you, how did it feel to win, to know? Well, I, I'm really curious. What was the, what was the, the moment when you realized that you, you'd, you'd won the gold medal? What did that feel like? For those who've never, or may I, never, probably will not, most people will not win a gold medal in an in Olympics. It's a feeling that can never be replicated. Winning on home soil. Mm-hmm. Winning on home soil is a feeling that can... I mean, especially as an, uh, when we were underdogs going in. You know, we weren't expected to win there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a feeling that... It goes beyond words. Like, I don't even know if there are words that can explain what it feels like to not only win an Olympic gold medal is one thing, but to win on home soil mm-hmm. is... It's... It's... It's like it uplifts you. Like it, you're kind of like soaring above. Right. It's almost like the cheers of everyone who are there are, have lifted you out of body. Like it's a weird, it's a yeah. weird thing. And it's very surreal and it's very, it's a blur. There's certain points that are very clear, but just moments that are clear. And the rest is kind of, mm-hmm. you look back and it's like, I'm the same person I've always been. So did that really happen? Like, it's like a very, it's like it was a dream almost. And I think, it was a special moment for Canada, that whole Olympics. It was I mean, I think very it almost, special it moment. brought the whole country together. It was electric across the country, no yeah. matter who you talk to. John Mon- I remember the John Montgomery moment, yeah. you know, walking through the village with his beer. And it's, yes. You know, just that moment, you just, you just, there was so, and, the, and I remember when you won, you guys won the goal. I remember seeing the, this picture. I remember this. Yeah. If you're on YouTube, you'll see the picture. 
Um, but I, I remember like that was such a proud moment. I can't, you know, I can't believe how I, I was proud and you, I think this was Sochi. This is Sochi. You're right. Sorry. Yeah. But I remember it is a hundred percent Sochi because you can see the, yeah. the Sochi behind, but I still remember the moment like, but even this one, like prior to those Olympic games, only one Canadian athlete had ever successfully defended a gold medal. Katrina LeMay don't. Right. And so since then, you know, it just wasn't at that games. Alex Bilodeau did it. Yeah. And then we followed and it was just to be able to defend is it's a very different it feeling. It it's different? a very is different it? feeling than winning on home soil, but on home soil, like the very first feeling that we had when we crossed the line and realized we won to be perfectly frank was relief mm -hmm. because we had been in, we had, you know, done well, we were in first it was more pressure. and then we were in first and then we were in first. And then for the last run, we we're sitting in first to go down and we're like, just don't want to screw it up. Right. Like we are in a position right now where it's ours to lose. To lose. So we, but we didn't look at the time splits. So we didn't know how far ahead we were or mm -hmm. how, which is good. We just needed to standpoint. We needed to execute the same we did for every other run. In Sochi, we were behind from the beginning. Right. Yeah. That's like right. we were you significantly losing. How, how after far, the, how far? Just after the first day. So after the first two runs, we were losing by 23 hundredths of a second. Which is, which is a it's, an, it's an eternity in bobsledding. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I mentioned earlier that we, we lost after four heats, 5.7 kilometers by five hundredths of a second. Mm -hmm. So this is 27 hundredths after just two runs. So wow. <clears throat> when we showed up second day, it was, you know, a lot of people would have just been like kind of mentally quit and would have just resigned themselves to going through the motions. Just been like, okay, like let's just, this is impossible. But my thinking is if they were able to do that in two runs, we're able to do it in two runs, right? Like you, if they were able to, we're able to. And so you just, and let's just chop it back up and see how close you can get. And if you can get it closer on the third run, the other team will most likely see a gap closure. Mm -hmm. And there are very few teams who don't look at time splits. We like Kaylee didn't, but I knew that the other driver did. And if she saw that we were encroaching, she'd probably panic and make some mistakes, mistakes that would cost her. Yeah. So, I mean, it was really just a matter of us executing as best we could on the third run. Yeah. And then we closed that gap in half. So we were losing by 11 hundredths. And then when you bobsledding is, is such so that, uh, on the last runs, like on the, the winning runs, they go from, um, last place to first place so that the last leg coming down is technically sitting in first. And so the second last leg comes down and they're in the winner's circle. And technically if the other sled has just as good a run as before, they would then bump that person yeah. out and they would win. You see um, that TV just kind right. of walk and so off, the winners, disappear off the screen. Exactly. And so we came down second yeah. last cause we were, you know, sitting in second, but by this time it was only 11 hundredths behind mm -hmm. and we're watching. And if she had had a really good run, we would have come in second, but we, the pressure was like, she saw that pressure and she would have heard the, everything from the mm -hmm. top. And she made mistakes right from the beginning that cost her. And so right at the beginning, we're watching and we're seeing the time, like the clock and we're like, Oh my gosh, Oh my gosh. Yeah. And there's actually like a, a photo out there that has almost like a, a film strip of our reactions. Like we're sitting like this with our hands up by our mouths, like, Oh my gosh. And then the next one's like, hands out going up, like the look of surprise. And then the next one going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, it's happening. And then, oh my gosh. And then our hands are up in the air and then we're just jumping and our hair is like flying. And they, it was just crazy. It's such a different feeling to do a come from behind yeah. win. Which was sweeter then? I don't know that there is a sweeter home soil, like winning on yeah. home soil and kind of dominant and just being like owning that moment, owning that track, owning that moment. There's nothing that'll beat that. Yeah. But the feeling is so different in Sochi, just like that come from behind and to be able to, 
you know, execute and, and deliver something, which also kind of indicates that we didn't just win in Vancouver because of a home track advantage, like that we actually deserved that win as well. It kind of solidifies mm-hmm. that, that we deserved what we yeah. got. Because you might think, oh, it's Canada. Maybe it's, they're doing things in their favor. You always think those yeah. stupid things. Yeah. So, and then you went to the Olympics are always have stories about that type of stuff. So I'm, it's cool that you won too. And then of course you went back again. Yes. Just last year. Just last year. Yes. 2018. Um, older. But just that year. Like I went back in August. I remember we had a conversation. I, you yeah. spoke at an event that we ran. <laughs> And uh, you had said you were going to cancel all of your speaking engagements. I ha- yes, because you had a train. Not cancel. I couldn't take on any more. Couldn't take any more. Yeah. That's right. You couldn't. That's right. You couldn't. But you yeah. were going to make sure you could still do ours, yes. which was great. That's how we connected. But um, but I remember that you were just like I remember that we had a conversation. I think I don't know where you, you were in a hotel. We we called. I talked on the phone for a while, and you had just kind of just coming out that you were going to do this. Yes, in September. And it was a lot of a lot of thought went into that decision. Like an entire month of speaking in hypotheticals and like seriously examining pros and cons lists for going back. I mean, part of it was since Sochi, I'd made it my entire business to like empower other people and to help other people achieve their goals. And, and I I love that. And uh, me going back and doing another season would mean putting my business on hold and Mm -hmm. like, and especially creating this, the momentum of actually being a legitimate speaker, teacher, coach, coach someone who can actually help people utilizing my occupational therapy degree, like doing all of these things and, and to put a, a gap in that. Um, and I had some people saying, Oh, you don't want to go back because if you don't win, then you're not leaving on a gold medal note. And I'm like, okay, well that person clearly is focused on just the winning aspect. Yeah. And then, and then, but if that's what people are valuing, then does that then decrease my brand for speaking and the impact I can make from a stage and, and, you know, And then there was the, but the person, the only reason I considered to come back. So my former teammate asked me and I said, no, the one with whom I'd won gold in Sochi and Vancouver. And then the coaches asked me and I said, no. And then I got a Instagram message from this up and coming driver, Alicia Risling. We'd never met before. uh, And she'd never been to an Olympic games. And her pitch really was that um, she was looking for my experience of managing a high pressure Being there. situation. Yeah. High performance mm-hmm. in a, in a crazy Olympic season where she's, she's been told by so many people that it's their stresses and pressures like no other season. And there are almost a mental coach for her. Yeah. And it was fun. Yeah. It was really fun. And it was re- a whole different reason for me going back. Do I regret going back? I was going to ask, do you regret going back at all? Not at all. Not at all. I think it was the, I mean, she, we, we came sixth. Uh, and so for me, uh, that was a successful run because she was ranked sixth in the world going in. Mm-hmm. So the whole point about being able to, I mean, you can't magically increase skill or where you are, but you can, uh, I could help with mindset and performing at such an intense high performance environment where the pressures are crazy at the Olympic games, her being able to maintain a mental focus to be able to execute where she, where she is and the skills that she has are phenomenal and she has so much potential and she's still, she's still doing oh she's still competing yeah and she's got a lot of potential so i mean the fact that she's kind of has now had the experience of of keeping her mindset under control and putting things in perspective for her to be able to execute is is pretty is pretty great i, I look at your decision you know again i'm not a world-class athlete but i would i would look at your decision to go back as very selfless not didn't do it for you i think you did it for you, the opportunity to help somebody else and to, and to share your, your three Olympics with someone else. 
I think that's, that's selfless. That's selfless leadership. I think often leaders are people who look for the way to, to be defined as, as the number one or the best. And I think from, just from my outside objective opinion, I've heard your story a number of times and, you know, I, I think what you did was very selfless. And I think that's a really important thing in leadership to show. I appreciate that. It was, it was a hard decision. I'm not going to lie. It was really tough, but the more I thought about my business and how it affect my business, that would have been the self, you're right. That would have been the selfish decision being like, no, I'm just concerned about my business. But when I talk about what my business is about and that's empowering other people, Mm -hmm. me going back to help somebody else is exactly what my business is about. It's exactly 100%. what that's the, what you want to do on stage. You want that's to help exactly what people. I want to do. You want to you want to you want to give them tools, inspiration, and ideas that will help them move their lives forward, and not, not in bobsledding and not in rugby, no, but in life. But this was a tangible way to yes. be able to do that, and hopefully, pe- there were some people right to the very end who didn't understand and their values and priorities and definitions of success are obviously you gotta, different. You gotta, you gotta, you know, screw the haters. Yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, but I mean, everyone's going to, people are going to doubt you. People doubt me through my entire 27 years. People doubted me. <laughs> like when I said, I'm going to build a studio, they're like, you're an idiot. What do you know about it? And we'll figure it out. It'll be great. Exactly. Um, I heard that in bobsledding. I heard yeah. it in cycling. I heard it in like everything. It's, it's, but I think by me going back and actually like emerging, like immersing myself back into something physical and tangible, yeah. like a tangible representation of what I talk about, it was also important for me. Um, like, I mean, I talk about authentic decision-making and making the decisions that align with your values and your priorities. And, and you know, some people were saying, I said, I'm just here to push a rookie. And some of the guys at the start of the season were like, oh yeah, whatever, you'll be you know, back in the Canada one sled by games. And I said, no, I'm, no, I'm not. Like I'm, it's important to me to come back and invest in the next generation and yeah. to, and they said, oh, please, they'll, they're going to make you. I said, nobody can make me do anything. Yeah. Like nobody can make, they're like, oh yeah, what are you going to do? Leave? I said, yes, I've actually had a conversation with the coaching staff and with the head of Bobsley Canada saying, this is all part of the August decision-making. Like if I come back in the hypotheticals, if I come back, I would only be coming back to push a rookie. It didn't have to be Alicia and Alicia knew that she, she was the invitation, but if it was another rookie, great. If it was another rookie, I am here to help invest in the next generation, people who've never been to the games before mm-hmm. and whatever that looks like, that's fine. But if there's some kind of ultimatum, I don't need to compete in a fourth Olympic games. I don't need another Olympic medal. I am okay. Yeah. And I can leave. And continue already, doing already, what I'm doing. You've already won at the highest level. So yeah. I think that story, and, mm-hmm. I, and I, I think the story of you going back for that fourth Olympics is actually my favorite story of yours, that you did that. Thank you. I think that um, it, just, it just shows so much about your character um, that you would choose to, to help rather than to raise your, your own stock up. Thank you. Um, I think that's amazing, which I think is great about your book. Yeah. Redefining Realistic. Here it is right here. Yeah. It's also on the big screen behind us. Not a very big screen. Anyway. Um, <laughs> huge screen. It's a huge screen. But I, so tell me like, when did this, when did this all come about? When did the book come about? Oh gosh. So I had, people had been like, after speaking at, at speaking engagements uh, and just doing regular keynotes over the years, people would come up at the end and, you know, occasionally you get people who are in tears um, waiting in line. And then when they meet you, it was because they're going through a tough time and something that I said in my talk 
about empowerment Metaphors. resonated with them. Um, but people were starting to ask me about a book. Do I have a book or can they, can they get a book? And I'm like, uh, I don't have a book. Um, and then I opened for a few years ago, I opened an event for John Maxwell. Um, who wrote the forward of your book? Who wrote the forward of my book? Yes. But is a very, big speaker on yeah, leadership and legendary leadership yeah. guru. Yeah. But the funny thing is, is that I didn't know who he was at the Kinda time. Like you didn't know about the Olympic <laughs> yeah. stuff and you, didn't you know, stuff. You exactly. Just, yeah. Exactly. But I showed, I, I did my re like, usually I research my, my audience, right? right. Cause I want my, my message to resonate with the audience. Mm -hmm. And so this was, um, in this case, I knew that I was opening a three part day, like three different audiences, um, but opening for this gentleman from the States. And so I just, I said, he, he said he's an author. So I just said, John, Ma John C. Maxwell author. And so I just got a list of his books, his like 80 some mm -hmm. books on leadership yeah. and Prolific looked at, writer. looked at the titles just to see, kind of get an idea of the sense of writer. He was, I didn't realize he has an empire yeah. of, of leadership and stuff. So anyway, it was crazy. Um, so I just showed up there and it was great. Nice to meet you. Yada, yada. And then after, after the day, he came up and he said, uh, I hear speakers all the time because this is my business, uh, but very rarely do I hear a speaker who connects as well to an audience as you do. Mm -hmm. I would love to mentor you. And now, I think the event you did, <clears throat> you did three different audiences. audiences. Yeah, it was in front of 6,000 high school students in a yeah. coliseum. Then it was a luncheon, a private VIP luncheon for like CEOs Corporate and the mayors people. and uh, like premier and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Big stuff. Um, big and wigs. then, yeah, big wigs. And then those, those big wigs, we love them, but those big, those lovable big wigs, um, then kind of amalgamated into this bigger room where um, business and community leaders kind of could pay to come into this right. session in the afternoon. And so it was three very different groups, but it was, uh, and three different lengths of speech. Like it was all kind of adjusted. And he just said that it was, he just commented on how remarkable it was for me, my ability to connect. And, um, and he offered to mentor me and I and gave me a cell phone number and I was like, Oh, thanks. Like I just, I took it politely as though he were just paying me a compliment, not having any clue. Right. And so I sent him a message. I said, you mentioned uh, mentoring me. What would that look like? You live in the States. Like I've never had a mentor before. And he said, well, why don't you, um, he goes, you probably wouldn't need to take this course, but I, I run a, like a leadership kind of a, a certification course or something in, in February. Why don't you come? And just cause he goes, I would really, I've already told my staff about you. I would love for them to meet you and to understand what I'm talking about and what I see when I'm, when I mentioned you. And I was like, in my head, okay, he's got a staff. Like I'm thinking he's a speaker. Like yeah. I am like, yeah. what? Well, I don't have a, you Looks know, that like kind spare of bedroom in exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> so anyway, I, I was like, okay, I'll sign up for this course. So I signed up for this course and went down to Florida and I, there were like 1100, 1200 people taking this certification course and treating him as though he were like a guru, a rock. Yeah. yeah. This rock star. Like, yeah. I, and I was like, Oh my. And here I am having lunch with his, he and his staff and then go to this family lunch with his, like later that night with some of his close people he works with. And I was just really like a, I just saw a different level of where things could go. And he said, the first thing is you need a book. He goes, in order to reach more people, he goes, in order to, um, to give people takeaways. He said, when you're speaking somewhere, they'll only remember a small percentage of what you say. But if you have something that they can take with, 100%. take with them. And, and also it's expansions of what you're talking about. You only have a certain amount of time yeah, on you stage. An you have an Usually. hour. 
Yeah, if that. Yeah. And then the book can be expansions of that. And if yeah. someone has really resonated with something you're saying, you need to provide them with something that they can go. And not only that, but the people who aren't fortunate enough to be in your audience, because it's mostly corporate people who will pay for their, like you're yeah. speaking at an AGM or a conference, but just the general public, like for them to be able to access your message, your philosophies, your, your mindset, your, your ability to help them and add value to them, you need to write a book. Yeah. So I was, took that to heart and I waited until after I climbed the mountain in Antarctica in That's Jan a whole other episode in, of our show. Whole, next one. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, after I climbed that, because uh, he was thinking that it might shift the way, like it might give me a different perspective on things. So I started uh, pulling out stories in, I would say the spring of 2016. Um, and then kind of got on, on, on hold for, for part of the summer and then picked it up again in the fall, but the fall is really busy for me in terms of speaking engagements. Um, so it was really 2017, uh, in January, February, March, I think I only had like a couple of events each month. So the rest of the time I hold myself into, you know, the dining room and I worked as though like I, it was probably unhealthy that I didn't get up from the t desk very much, but I, I was there just till, you know, late in the evening, just trying to get things done. And then I, um, I didn't want to write with a ghostwriter. Uh, I tried a little bit talking to someone and, and he didn't get, there's a very yeah. fine line between being love, inspirational and empowering and being cheesy and fluffy. And I'm not that. So I wanted it to be empowering, like for someone to read it and be like, Bam. Well, okay. it's funny you said, sorry to interrupt, but I, I've only had the book for a few days and I, I've started reading it and I love in your intro, you say, I write this like from the heart. This is just how I speak. And I, I don't, As I'm offend, talking in a coffee shop. Yeah, I don't offend, I don't want to offend the grammar gods and the, you know, <laughs> but this is just how I speak. Yeah. So I love that. It's so, it's very authentic, which, which well, the grammar gods was are. also for, and my mother, I put that was also in brackets and you're, and yeah, and because you're. I didn't want people to think I don't know my grammar. Yeah. I wanted people to know I do know my grammar, but I also know that I didn't want it to be an uppity, mm -hmm. but I want, I want it to be accessible for as many people reading it as possible. And if someone's heard you like on this podcast yeah. or on stage or somewhere else and, and they read that book, you can hear, I can hear you. That's what I'm people have it. said. And, yeah. and, and just like, oh, this is just having a conversation. It's like having a conversation. I heard a great quote once. If you want to meet great people, have conversations, buy their books, listen to this, read their stories. It's like having a coffee with them. Yeah. Right. And that's what your book is. I think your book is like having a coffee with you and you're just yeah. I've heard sharing. that from a lot of people. It's also the fact that I italicize the words I want. Like, yes. It, it, I fought for a lot of that stuff. Like yeah. when I finally got to the editing stage, I fought for a lot of those little tweaky things to make it actually sound like what I would be saying. Mm -hmm. And it was, yeah, it was, it was a tough road, but I mean, I then hired like a substantive editor to help me actually organize and, and amalgamate chapters or, cause I've never done this before. Yeah. So it was a, it was not a cheap process because I wanted to do it right. I wanted to, um, I wanted it to be done well. I didn't want just some little flimsy thing in the back of a room that just to be called an author. That's not the point. I wanted to really, truly add value so to people. You didn't, you didn't just want a back of the room sales piece. You wanted an actual no piece of nut. So a solid piece of information, some meat. Um, so what's next for the book, for you, for everything, for everything. Um, well, are, you, are you done with, are you done with competitive sports? Well, I thought I was done after Sochi. True. <clears throat> so if I said, yes, I'm done now, I'd have some people saying, Oh yeah, whatever. We'll see in three years. Yeah, never say never. I guess, you know, right? never say never. Um, I mean, I'm, I, uh, let me just make this clear though. I have no intentions right yes. now of going back to do anything. Yeah. 
Um, but things change. And the thing is, if there is a different motivation or different reason for doing something that I think might help empower other people, then you never, you don't know, you never know. So, um, you know, it's, you have a way about you. I think your, your, your speaking career, you've, you've definitely embraced, um, and you're, and it's growing for you. Um, you know, you spoke at an event that we held a a couple of years, two years, last November, it was only last November. Um, so a year ago. Um, and I remember, you know, a lot of, it was a youth event and a lot of teachers came up to me and said what they loved about you was, um, you were so real for the kids that you didn't seem that you were talking down to them. Didn't seem like you were better than them. You weren't like, Oh, look at me. I'm so great. I won gold medals, blah, blah, blah. It just seemed like you were having a conversation with this two and a half thousand people in this room. That's a big compliment. And, and I think that is, it's, it's a really powerful thing because there are a lot of great athletes who have great stories to tell, but they can't tell their story. Right. Or they can't make it accessible make and accessible relatable or relatable yeah. or enjoyable. I'm, I'm not going to, I've sat through some, <laughs> some, some moments with athletes. I'm just thinking like, I'm so proud that you've done what you've done, but I don't want to hear anything else about it. Cause yeah. it's, it's an awful story. <laughs> and I think cause you've gone beyond your story. Um, yes. and that, I think that's really important that maybe the, maybe the Olympic medals is, is your way you open doors for people. It's a platform for but me it's right not, now. It's not how you want to be the only thing you've ever done no. or to be remembered. And, or you want, you don't want to ride that story for the next 20 years. No, but I also think that the value that I add comes from, yes, I have a ton of stories that I can use as backdrops to relay my messaging, but mm-hmm. my messaging of like overcoming obstacles and facing challenges mm-hmm. and embracing challenges and, and the, all of that stuff also comes from my training as, as an occupational therapist, sure. you know, like figuring out what goals are truly important to you, not what other people tell you are important and finding ways to kind of make that happen. And it, and it's, um, I feel really blessed that I have both of those to come through, to be able to fuse together, to, to, to actually have a bit of, uh, I don't know, of solid foundation underneath, underneath my messaging. And it's, it's been really powerful, but, the accessibility part you talked about, that's the same. Uh, I spoke at a women's uh, empowerment day. It was a whole event day. And this young woman came up to me afterwards and she said, I've got to be perfectly honest. When you first walked out of there, my, and she, she had a, a name for her alter ego, like Betty or something. She said, um, Betty was raring to go. And Betty is the person, she, the name she gives herself when she knows that it's the jealousy, the right. claws out, the like, oh, look, she thinks she's so much better than everyone right. else. Like that, the Betty was primed to be like cutting me down. Mm-hmm. Thinking because right after the intro, the intro is all about everything I've accomplished and all of these like accolades and yeah. all of these. And she said, and you would have had every right to come out like that. But she said, and I was just like claws up, just ready to go. Like, oh, please. And she said, and within 30 seconds, I just wanted to be your best friend. Yeah. Well, you, you relax the audience right away. hundred percent. Um, which is funny because you, you redefine a lot of things. And I love that. I you love really that. Do. But you asked what's next. Next, like the book is out now, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> which is, which is really great. Like some gigs I'm being hired just simply because they've read the book and, and it's kind of moving things forward, which is really fun. Um, but there are initiatives I'm kind of creating still with my overarching mandate. Like I, I, my whole, someone said, well, what do you stand for? And I was just like, well, what do you mean? And they said like, what riles you up? Like what really gets under your skin and what frustrates you? And the biggest thing that frustrates me, which is now the passion that fuels everything I do is people selling themselves short. And so, which is why, where this slogan of 
we are all capable of way more than we give ourselves credit for. And that also includes our ability to impact other people and impact those around us. So one of those, these initiatives that I'm, that I'm looking at starting is creating this, this youth leadership outreach program. We'll talk about this later. We will. Yeah, lots. 100%. Um, but anyway, I'm really, really excited about it. And uh, another one is, is creating a women's retreat. And hopefully yeah. that'll come up next year. But the women's retreat is not just like a fun retreat. It's actually a, a retreat that'll be disconnecting them from all tech in order to reconnect with their values, with the things that are truly important yeah, to them. Real organic things. In order for them to achieve their potential. Because without that, they're going to be fighting with um, the lack of authenticity and just being caught in the momentum of other people's opinions and values yeah. and expectations. I think, I think one thing you have an ability to do, and I you know, do, do as you wish with your, with your journey, but I think that young women need to have strong, kick-ass role models. Um, and that's something that you provide. Um, you know, young men need to hear that women are more than what a lot of young men think they are. Um, and I think women need to have more, um, value in themselves and value in what they're capable of doing. And I think there's not enough women out there who have a strong story to tell and a strong personality, which you do. Um, and I think that you have an potential, especially right now, 2018 with all the different stuff going on with women, all the the changes that are happening and not enough, not, not fast enough, not, not quick enough, but you have such, um, a way with people. And I think that young girls, I wish I I would love, you know, every girl I work with to hear you speak. And I'm talking about every comes to our programs should hear you speak um, and meet you. So I really mean that. Um, okay. I want to wrap this up. We have, we got to wrap this up. So I have a couple of random quick questions. Random uh, questions. Okay. Yeah, so they're kind of like uh, rapid fire. Um, and I also have uh, just one quick question. I, I, someone asked me to ask you. Someone asked you. You're not going to tell me who? No, it was, it was in passing. It was just in passing. It was literally okay. just in passing. Because it was, it was nothing about you personally. It was about your experience. Okay. Was Sochi is crazy in terms of how bad it was supposed to be in the village <clears throat> and all that stuff with all the unfinished things and all the crap that happened in Sochi? Was that, was that a real thing? No. It wasn't. The food was, sucked. The food sucked? Yeah, food sucked. It was like, it was like there was, the, the village had like rooms without showers, flushing toilets, there was brown okay. water, there was undrinkable okay. food water. In, in Sochi, our, I'm trying, I'm to, get, I'm trying to think of my dorm rooms now, all the different dorm rooms we had. In Sochi, our shower flooded like three, four times. So we asked the maintenance people to come up and fix our shower. I think after they tried to fix it for the third time, we just said, okay, well, let's just move on to solutions. And we just got extra towels and put them on the floor. Right so the, it's, <laughs> let's just move on with this. <laughs> right. um, but not, I don't think any of the villages, Vancouver, I think was the only one that was finished. The, right. the city one, Go though, Canada. I'm not sure it was. I'm not sure that the city one was, but the mountain one was. Um, but Torino certainly wasn't finished. Um, and But the dorm rooms are. Like, the rooms where we're staying. And they're not fancy. We're not staying in hotels. We're no, staying no. in, like, they would be, like, university dorm room. Yeah. Um, in Vancouver, they were more like townhouses because they were going to be reselling them after. Um, and in the city, in the coastal villages, it's usually apartments and stuff like that, which is a bit different. But up where we are, they're kind of these... They, they're like dorm rooms. Yeah. So you've got like two or three single beds in a room and two little nightstands and two little cupboards yeah. and a little so bathroom. so much negativity about the Sochi. Yeah. Um, I, I, the, some of the hotels outside of the athlete's village, like where some of the media were staying, those might not have been finished, but right. those are, those are private so maybe it's more of the, construction companies. Right. I, I, if there were, I don't know. Okay. Enough with that. I, I don't just, know. I was asked to ask you who was really as bad as it was made out to be. It wasn't. 
Um, all right, so rapid fire questions. Here we go. Number one, if you could go back, I'm, I am curious actually to grade 12, Heather, um, what would you, advice would you give yourself to grade 12, Heather? Any? Lots? None? Oh gosh, I probably would. Um, but I don't know that it would be advice as much as an experiential exposure to opportunities. I, that may not make sense. Um, <clears throat> I had a coach who came to me in grade 12 and said, you have so much potential. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was a compliment at first until he then followed up with, and just so you know, potential is just talent you don't have yet. Right. So, I mean, that at the time, at 17 years old, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, thanks, like, whatever. But for whatever reason, that exact conversation came back to me when I started bobsledding. Mm. And when my sister was talking about, you know, the, the lifting and the training and all of this stuff and the, all of a sudden there's no regrets and this potential. Well, what is my potential? Like, can I figure out what I'm actually capable of? Mm -hmm. Like, if I push myself, what am I, what am I capable of? But without, when you come from a small place, it's not exactly the type of place where you want to stand out. Mm. So, well, for me, yeah. I wanted to blend in. I yeah. knew I was athletically probably gifted, but I didn't want to make it seem like I was trying to be better than other people. Right. right? You don't want that. It's a negative attention thing. So I don't know. It probably would have been something around that, like actually experiencing potentially where you could go. Cause that's exactly what it took when I did start bobsledding. It took the testing. I shut the whole thing down until I tested and I broke a record and I was like, wait a second. I wonder, can I actually mm -hmm. do this? So I think for me, it was, it would be some kind of like experiential spark that would have been like, huh, I wonder what, um, that wasn't a very quick fire answer. No, it was, it was it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. There's no real time limits here. Um, what would you tell a, a kid now in grade 12, a girl in grade 12? Any advice you give anybody in grade 12? Right uh, I would think it, not for you, but for any grade 12 kid. Uh, I think it would be about setting goals and setting goals that, uh, not just based on whether you can actually achieve them or not. Like mm -hmm. the explaining to them that there are no guarantees when you set goals, but the whole point is you'll, you'll never like setting goals higher than where they think they'll actually flag be able to accomplish flag goals. Yeah, flag goals. Yeah. So when you set a goal that's higher than you actually think you'll get, then you will actually be able to figure out what you're truly capable of. Mm -hmm. Like if you have a goal to stand, have be a gold medalist at the Olympic games, then maybe you'll actually win a bronze or a silver or maybe a gold. Mm -hmm. But if you don't actually, if you think that's too big yeah. and you're like, oh, whatever, then you will never get started or you'll never figure it out. If you embrace the challenge of seeing how close you can get to something and just enjoying that journey of like, okay, well, yeah, I might not get there. I'm, I may never achieve the goals I set for myself, even myself now in my business, but I sure as hell am going to see how close right. I can get. It's kind of teaching them or telling them to embrace just the challenge and the fun of seeing how creative they can be to get there, how fun they could be. Maybe they take a different path to get there, but like challenging, them, challenging themselves to see how close they yeah. can get to the And there are more opportunities goals. right now than there's ever been for kids to do incredible things. Like, I know. Literally incredible things. It's insane the amount. Um, if you could send out a text message. Um, so uh, Tim Ferriss, I don't know if you know Tim Ferriss, but his podcast, he always asks guests, he says, if you could do a billboard anywhere in the world that said one thing that everybody had to read, or one would a million to would read, what would it, that message be to the world? Mine is if you could send a text message out to everybody in the world that they all received at one, you know, like at one moment, every just bing popped up, you know, like, um, what would it be? 
probably don't sell yourself short. You are capable of way more than you give yourself credit for. Beautiful. I like that one. Don't sell yourself short. You're capable of way more than you give yourself credit for. Yeah. I love it. So redefine realistic for yourself. Um, and what inspires you? What inspires me? In 2018, what, what gets, what gets Heather going? Honestly, it's the, it's the idea of changing people's perspectives so that they, it's just adding value to people, adding value to people's lives in this, in, in their mindset, in the, in the sense of how they're thinking and how they can embrace challenges and the things that, that, uh, I guess that kind of reinforce that is when I get responses back from someone, when I get an email through my website saying what they've just done only because they read my book or hearing a message from someone at a book signing saying, I've already read your book. Can you sign this? I just went backpacking in Italy and never thought I'd physically be able to do it. And I was like, Oh my gosh, that's really great. And then when they say I did it just because of your book and then I just have goosebumps and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm choked up now. Like those are the things that reinforce the path that I'm on Mm -hmm. in order to add value to other people. Um, and then What's your guilty pleasure? People want to know what's your guilty pleasure. Guilty. What do you do? Like, what do you do in your spare time? What is your thing you do? See, I have a lot of pleasures. I just don't feel guilty about them. Oh, I like that. Yeah. But like I. Be, what? There's gonna be something like. like <laughs> no, I don't feel guilty about a do lot you have a of TV show you watch. Are you Netflix? Are you, are you, are you a Netflixer? I, I am sometimes a Netflixer. I would just a record. Thing? A word up a Netflixer. Netflixer. I, th- I think that's a. I think that's a word. Yeah. Yeah, I eat candy all the time. Yeah, and, that was something and, that we had a conversation about. Yeah. And I found out you are not this world-class no. diet that I thought you might be on. How do you know that's not a world-class diet? That's a diet of an Olympian because I'm Well, I know Olympian. that. I've, I'm learning that more and more. I've, other people told me this. I, eat, yes. They eat like, ice yeah. cream and candy. And, yeah, Domino's shouldn't be prompting a company, but pizza or fast food or... Big I, Mac and fries. I am okay with that, but as long as it's... When I talk about that, I have to make sure that people realize that there's got to be a balance and that it's not replacing the nutrition and stuff. But I also like talking about that because there's so many eating disorders out there where people are restricting themselves yeah. and restricting their diets when they, it's just a fad and they actually have no idea that what you're doing, well, you're losing weight because you're starving your body, not because you're actually... Like, you're not healthy. Um, and it's, so for me, me being able to talk about my diet like that and how it's not, I'm not counting calories. I'm not, you know, any of those things. I feel really blessed that I'm able to do that, but by putting it in a context that's, that's important for our mental well-being. Yeah, I think it's important again for young women to hear that you don't have to eat peas and air. No, (laughs) that's a good, (laughs) there should be more than that. With a side um, of salary. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. That's exactly. not good. Um, so, you know, Heather, thank you very Welcome. much. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm super, I'm super blessed and super grateful that you could be here. Um, I just think you're one of the coolest people I've met. And I've met a lot of people. Um, I think you're a very authentic speaker. Um, I'm enjoying your book thus far. And uh, I know I'll enjoy the whole thing. Um, and I look forward to whatever it is you're going to do next. And I know we're going to hang out again soon. Yeah. So um, all of your... Where do, how do people get a hold of you? Like, what's your, what's your, um, how do you get a hold of me? You know, I was like my meds. cell phone number. For, I'm just no, going to no, tell no, you. Your, so your social meds, like, what are you on Instagram and stuff? Um, yeah. Instagram and face Instagram and Twitter, are both just at Heather Moise. Okay. Um, and then Facebook same, just Google yeah. Heather Moise. It's there. Uh, Heather Moise is a page. Apparently there's another Heather Moise, Heather married some Moise somewhere. Really? Yeah. 
But anyway, mine's a, mine's actually like a fan page for, for following. Right. Um, and yeah. And just, if there are any inquiries about stuff yeah. or, or if anybody wants to order a book just on my website, which is just heathermoist.com. And there's a, there's a contact page if people want to need to get a hold of me or send feedback about what my book or what anything, if they've heard me speak, if something's yeah. affected them, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. All yeah. the, uh, all that stuff will be in the show notes, um, as well. So all Sweet. Her, her digits, final thoughts, anything, final thoughts, anything? No, just thanks for being here. No, thank you for being here. All thanks right. for having me here. Yay. Thanks, Heather. <laughs> you just ran a couple of races in the winter you're still fast you're much older now so it's probably going to be harder and i was like <laughs> so you, you're much older you now. don't tell a redhead that no. you know things might be more challenging